Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm John. And I'm Robin. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We use honest, good faith analysis, backed by research, to form our conclusions. We promise to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human. We have blind spots and personal biases, and they will show up sometimes. But the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful and beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on the show, and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing. But we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think we can do that using research and discussion to create common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable, maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Standard hellos and welcome backs. Yeah. Hellos, mm-hmm. welcome backs. It always feels really awkward to script that stuff. It does. Because it, does, but it should be like organic, but then you don't want to not have something in there. The I don't problem know. is we don't we don't do organic super well, Robin. We <laughs> I mean actually the problem is we actually do organic too well. Too well. We do organic yeah. so well that it turns uh what should be a 45 minute show into like an hour and 30 minutes if we go too organic organic. or heaven forbid three hours like our first few episodes were (laughs) yeah which we didn't do any organic on it was straight reading from a script no 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 those were outlines remember we didn't script it we just put outlines and we just talked about it that's why we don't have those uh yeah have those up on the website yeah yeah because they're real long we do we do need to go back and and like re hash those so much work i know but if you if you think about how much less we'll have to do for each episode it's true that's true like the problem is like we still have to do the work and this week when did we do the work robin we we didn't do the work that's the thing you that's not what i was no 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 i was not hey okay today like one day (laughs) I wasn't asking for recognition. <laughs> well, no, but I'm just if, saying, like, if we had a if we had a little bar graph of times Robin has done most no. of the work and times John has done most of the work, it'd be very disproportionate. But well, no, but my point was like this was the last minutes of last minute is yeah, was the this, point that I was making. That's that's a fair point. This was the lastest of minutes. Yes, yes. like to the point that um, I was out of pocket, so you had to do like th- that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why was it so hard? I mean, like, yeah, no, you know, yeah, no big deal. No, and that's, yeah. There was so much to talk about. Is really what it came down to. There were a lot of options, and and initially we were gonna just kind of wing it and go mostly unscripted and talk about stuff. But, um, I mean, there, I mean, we could have talked about anything, right? From like. Yeah. Donald's at the beginning of the week, the goal was to talk about Donald Trump's assertion that we should, you know, check out the Constitution um, to 
we had considered talking about the Twitter files. Uh, I <gasps> dun, know, right? Dun, 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 dun. Dun. Oh, my God. I'm <laughs> Twitter files. Right. Sorry. But right at the last minute, somebody got a wave of inspiration and suggested that we go all in on Morvey Harper and the independent state legislature theory. I'm actually really glad that you did. Well, I had heard a lot about this and I, in all of my years of experience, had never actually heard, I'd never heard the electoral clause of the constitution expressed in this way, which which there's a reason for the independent state legislature theory, as we'll get into, wasn't really popular until um, about 2020. Yeah. For reasons. Reasons. Um, But before we get into that, I want to take a second to do something. We've never done this on the show before. Um, I do want to extend a hell of a lot of credit and gratitude to Amy Howe of SCOTUS blog. (laughs) Um, She wrote a couple of articles that proved to be invaluable resources in writing this episode. Uh, We reference them quite a bit. Mm -hmm. We try not to rely heavily on one single source, but sometimes there's just a really good source that gets what we need. Um, So this episode truly would not have been possible without her work. You can find links to her work in the show notes, um, specifically what we used, or you can just go to scotusblog.com and she has tons of articles there well worth the read every single one of them she's a she's uh very capable and 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 uh clear writer yes i very yeah. much enjoyed breaking your name excellent yeah. excellent coverage um on most supreme court cases over on scotus blog um but this one specifically for as kind of niche and out of the way as it is um for for the theory and and the content of the case um, she did an amazing job of explaining that. So actually, let's get started by talking about the independent state legislature theory. Mm, do it we sounds have to? so official. Like, it sounds it does. so legitimate. Yeah, I mean, and I, like if you're a political or legal or electoral or just general nerd like we are, you've probably been made aware of this ongoing Supreme Court case that is that is likely to determine the validity of this concept um, that is, I mean, it officially is called the independent state legislature theory. And this theory has been coming up time and again since the 2020 election, like I said earlier. Um, and you hear it all the time in conversations about partisan gerrymandering um, to attempts to dissolve the Wisconsin Election Commission. Um, <laughs> that was a good Claimants one. in courts. Yeah. Very, very specific one there. Um, Claimants in courts across the country really have been using this theory to support their arguments while they are in court. But even though the phrase gets thrown around a lot, as always, media folks and the like um, are particularly bad at explaining exactly what it means. They just kind of throw it out and expect the audience to be like, oh, yes, the independent state legislature theory. I'm well versed in this. It's just reading about that um, over my morning coffee the other day. Right. I saw a breakdown in the Atlantic over it. It was compelling. Um, <laughs> I think and I think part of that is one. It is not, uh, shall we say, leading headline phrasing really it's not compelling there's no blood here it in fact sounds not very scary at all yeah it's just a it actually kind of seems good if you 
understand or you have a passing familiarity with like the division of power between the federal and state governments. You're like, ah, yes, state legislatures should be independent um, or approaching that. Um, but for everyone leaning on the theory to make their cases in court, there's another person sounding the alarm and saying, hey, um, hmm, this could spell the downfall of American democracy. Honestly, I'm getting really really tired of all of the existential threats to our democracy recently. Can we get like, I don't know, an existential boon for our democracy or something like a, a plus one to democratic constitution, please? Please. Yes. I'll take that. Please. Yeah. No, sorry. <sighs> uh, but enough doom and gloom. Back to the theory. The independent state legislature theory is basically a specific way of reading a particular clause in the U.S. Constitution, and we'll get to that clause in just a bit, that if validated would give state legislatures very, very broad authority to pass legislation about the execution of federal elections in their states with very little checks or balances to that power on the state level. And again, this may not seem terrible on the surface. After all, our state governments probably have a better idea of how the people within the state would like their elections to be run than the federal government does. Uh, that's kind of the whole point of having state governments. They have better insight into the populations that they represent, and then they can theoretically serve them better. However, the U.S. government has checks and balances built in all over the place for a reason. It's because people that attain power tend to go to extreme lengths to retain that power. We've seen some of the legislation around voting that has been successfully and unsuccessfully implemented throughout the United States history. Things like literacy tests and voter ID laws and poll taxes and restrictions based on race or gender and so on and so forth. As long as there is a benefit to be had in limiting a certain population's ability to exercise their right to vote, there will be people interested in exploiting that limitation and disenfranchising portions of the population however they can. History is rife with examples that illustrate quite handily the need to have a system of checks and balances in place when it comes to enacting any law, but especially those laws that govern citizens' ability to reach the levers of power. Right. In the worst case, a completely independent state legislation could easily enact laws that legalize gerrymandering or severely limit the hours and locations available for citizens to vote. But I said worst case, these are more like the obvious and easily, right. likely easily challenged results. But there are, I think, more serious, more compelling reasons to be wary about this particular theory and it being validated. Um, and those include things like, oh, I don't know, eliminating the right for voters to cast a secret ballot. Mm -hmm. This is a right. This is a right that ensures people can truly vote for who they want without fear of reprisal or punishment. There's a reason that you don't sign your name to your ballot. And it's because if you have to basically own your vote, that opens you up to the people you care about or people you don't care about, uh, I don't know, hurting you, for example, because of who you voted for. Mm -hmm. I, I seem to recall like a swarm of people who 
attacked one of the primary institutions of democracy in America because other people voted for somebody they didn't like. Yeah. And I'm just like... Well, and I, I hmm. also seem to recall a population of people who are fundamentally opposed to having their names associated to things like, oh, I don't know whether or not they own a gun because mm. of fear of reprisal or punishment. For their actions? That's crazy. Shocker. That's, I don't know. Shocker. Anyway, if the independent state legislation theory were validated and upheld by the Supreme Court, um, yeah, there might be, there might be, um, a pretty immediate result of people not being able to vote in secret anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, that that's such a big deal to me because there's a reason um, that, for example, women fought to be able to vote outside of having their husband in the booth with them. Mm-hmm. And it's because sometimes, I don't know, married people don't vote for the same person. But if you have somebody standing over your shoulder watching everything that you're doing, maybe you won't feel so um, compelled to vote for the person that your husband has actively told you you should never vote for. There's, there's just a lot. There's a lot of what ifs. It's a slippery slope. It's a solid slippery it's, slope. It's a very solid slippery slope. I'm I just like that. That one when I read when I you know, just mm-hmm. upset me a great deal mm-hmm. because it's so important. And I don't think people recognize that it is not a right that is guaranteed to you by the U.S. Constitution. It is a right that is granted by state legislatures and or. Yeah, state legislative and and their laws um, to enable more fair and open voting or, yeah, open is the road I want. Um, There's also the possibility that provisions that delegate authority um, would likely be disposed of. So there are a lot of of laws in various states that set up election commissions um, and allow secretaries of state to uh, execute powers that were by uh, by the Constitution um, granted to state legislatures and by the state constitution granted to state legislatures even. Um, and so that enables one that, that enables like continuity of operations. It allows multiple points of failure, if you will, instead of a single point of failure. So if like in an emergency, if something comes up, elections can still happen, there's still a chain of command. there's still a way, multiple authorities for people to, uh, to execute an election. Um, I, oof, sorry, there's so much and I tried to cram it all in and now I'm realizing I may have written too much. <laughs> um, nah, it's been a long time since the people got a good old fashioned fireside breakdown where we cram yeah, way too much information into an episode because it's just so important. Yeah, yeah, well... Welcome to new listeners, and uh, you should know this is classic. Mm-hmm. And to old listeners, yeah, welcome back. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, back on our bullshit. Let me just let me let me see if I can sum this up a little more succinctly. Succinctly, um, things that are important to our electoral process because of checks and balances would totally be thrown out the window. Most critically, um, to me, aside from those other two things that I mentioned. <laughs> The power to review gerrymandering or voter suppression claims, which is currently granted to state level courts, um, would only be handled by the federal courts if this were to go through. Um, This is problematic because there are far fewer federal courts than state level. Yeah. Um, This would 
bog down the courts, greatly reduce any given citizen's ability to seek timely relief from infringements on your rights, it's a bad deal. Perhaps most tellingly, when you consider that defense for independent state legislatures comes almost entirely, if not actually entirely, exclusively from the right, um, it's this idea that, this, that support for this theory would mean that state legislatures would simply decide they could, excuse me, they could simply decide that they didn't like the outcome of a given election <laughs> and just refuse to certify it. Yeah, that's kind of the big elephant, the biggest elephant in the room in this conversation. And again, like this might sound familiar to you. Precursor attempts to legitimize this theory popped up everywhere in the wake of the 2020 election. And that is why, dear listener, we are paying very close attention to what is happening with this particular case before the Supreme Court right now. Meow. That case, right meow. Um, that case, the one that currently bef before SCOTUS, um, that many fear may completely destroy democracy as we know it, is Moore v. Harper. The central issue in this case is a question about whether a state's judicial branch may nullify the regulations governing the manner of holding elections for senators and representatives prescribed by the legislature thereof, and then replace them with regulations of the state, state court's own devising based on vague state constitutional provisions purportedly vesting the state judiciary with power to prescribe whatever rules it deems appropriate to ensure a fair or free election. What does that mean? Let me summarize that because <laughs> that was a lot of words. <laughs> it's a lot easier to read that than it is to listen to it for me. So basically the question before the court is, does the court, the state court, the Supreme Court of any given state, have the power to take a law that was passed by the legislature of any given state and say, no, this is not applicable. This is unconstitutional. We don't agree with this. And then say, you have to do this thing instead. You cannot run your election this way. You have to run your election this way. And in Moore v. Harper, the Supreme Court of uh, North Carolina said, no, you cannot use this congressional district map. You must use this congressional district map instead. Yeah. Um, the dispute in Morby Harper comes from a very specific challenge to a very specific congressional map um, that the Republican-controlled legislature was attempting to pass into law in November of 2021, like we're already a year past when they were trying to pass this into law, because that's how long it takes to get things through the Supreme Court. Um, and the map was struck down by the North Carolina Supreme Court because they found that it was a partisan gerrymander and that was in violation of the North Carolina Constitution. OK, 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 OK. We have to take a slight diversion oh, into diversion. constitutional history and background really, really quick. I promise you it's necessary. The problem here is that, of course, the Constitution has a few things to say about the election process and how democracy is supposed to function within the United States, which is just one reason, I think, that we should probably not throw out the entire thing. Certain people should mm -hmm. understand. Yeah. Uh, 
within the Constitution, there's this one sentence, Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1. It is a compound complex sentence that features a semicolon. <laughs> I'm very proud of the writers. Um, it says, the times, places, and manners of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. Yes, this this is the elections clause of the United States Constitution. And in plain English, this means that state legislatures have authority over Senate and House elections, but that Congress can choose to override state election laws by passing a law. There was one exception, which was basically that states could choose where people could choose their senators, but that the 17th Amendment eventually superseded this clause by basically restructuring how senators were chosen at all and then kind of nullified that part. Yeah. Fun fact, or not so fun fact, depending on how you look at it, did you know that senators used to be selected by state legislators and not by popular vote? Thank you, 17th Amendment, for putting that power in the hands of the people. Cue the the more you know star. Do, 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 do. Exactly. Uh, at the time that the U.S. Constitution was ratified, there was a considerable debate about whether or not allowing Congress to bypass state laws like this was a good idea. As Justice Joseph Story summarized in his Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States, states were concerned that this gave Congress too much power. They might elect to make election times so unreasonable that electors would ha would be unable to attend or in such an inconvenient place that electors wouldn't have the ability to actually exercise their right. Congress could also theoretically make it so difficult to actually hold an election that all but Congress's favorite choice for office could run. There were fears that Congress would just change the right of a person to participate in an election however they wanted, for example, by tying the number of votes to the amount of property an individual owned, and so on, without any consideration for how offensive such actions would be to the actual Constitution. Right. In contrast, none other than Alexander Hamilton of, of Hamilton fame and no other place, um, in the Federalist number 59 argued that not giving Congress the right to regulate congressional elections could give state legislatures the opportunity to, quote, at any moment annihilate the U.S. government by neglecting to provide for the choice of persons to administer its affairs. Which is kind of the same fear that Justice Story had about Congress having the ability to regulate congressional elections, if you're parsing that and reading between the lines. A group that had the sole power to dictate how elections, which are the primary mechanism for the people to express their will for the course of the government, um, if a group that had the sole power to dictate how people did that could then abuse that power to limit the actual practice of democracy is bad. bad. So... It didn't matter which group it would. It was. Whether it was just Congress or just the states, not a great thing. However, given the way this clause is written, it gives state legislatures the first cut, the first, the first attempt to control how congressional elections should be run, how federal elections should be run. Because of this, 
Hamilton posited that Congress would probably only get involved if, quote, extraordinary circumstances might render that interposition necessary to the U.S. government's safety. Justice Story, who, are, who was arguing the state side of things, agreed with this argument in principle, reasoning that members of Congress would be loath to impose election laws on states that objected to those laws. It would be very unpopular. Exactly. Okay, so back to our gerrymandered map. Apparently, the North Carolina Supreme Court thought that the proposed map by North Carolinian Republicans was so egregiously unbalanced in favor of Republicans that it was unconstitutional. We have an entire episode on gerrymandering. It's in season one, session 40, our very 40th yeah. episode, um, which is also part of a series on problems and challenges to voting in general. If you need a primer on some of the underpinning problems that we're discussing in this episode, um, so the very, very short explanation on a gerrymandered map is that it unfairly and illegally splits up or combines, in this case, North Carolina's non-Republican political populations so badly that it limits their uh, the opposing party's ability, um, read the Democrats in North Carolina's ability to elect proportional representation to office. They can't get Democrats elected because the districts are divided in a way that means that there's never going to be a Democratic majority. Um, or that Democratic majorities are consolidated to a minority of districts. Yes. Yeah. So when you look at the state legislature, it is completely imbalanced in one direction or the other and doesn't actually represent the political makeup of the people of the area, the state of North Carolina. Um, yeah. This sometimes looks like a district map that makes no geographic sense, like a fat line that twists and curves and stretches really thin at some points from the west side of the state all the way to the east side of the state and then back south and then to the west side of the state again. Um, and then it's impaled by a long, thin district for the opposing party. It's it's a mess. Some districts yep. have been drawn so thin in places that they barely encompass a single street. Um, for example, see Illinois' 4th District for Democrats or Texas's 24th for Republicans. Um, seriously, they look every bit as ridiculous as they sound. And that's that's kind of the thing of gerrymandering. So for a quick recap here, North Carolina's legislature says, hey, there's this super cool map that will definitely only give Republicans an advantage because that's that's just how the cookie crumbles and not at all because of some very unfairly drawn congressional districts, I, I swear. And then the North Carolina Supreme Court says, no, no, this is this is really bad, illegal. Here's a here's a better one. And then North Carolina's Republican legislature say, well, no. No, we're running this up to like the Supreme Supreme Court, not this like little state level Supreme Court thing you got going on here. Um, and that's kind of where we are in the story. The lawyer for the Republican legislators, one David Thompson, argued to the Supreme Court that the elections clause gives all of the authority to a state's legislature and to make rules for federal elections. State courts, therefore, cannot restrict a legislature's broad discretion to enact what rules they see fit. Rather, they are limited to enforcing procedural limits on the legislature's authority. Hmm. 
I mean, I don't, I don't feel like that's the intent of the law there. Um, and I don't know necessarily that the Supreme Court justices either do either. Um, this has run into some pretty skeptical responses from the various justices on the court. Uh, Justice Elena Kagan, in her questioning, listed a slew of previous SCOTUS cases that made it clear that state courts can constrain the legislature's power over federal elections as long as they're applying a state's constitution, uh, which makes sense to me, given that a state's constitution is what grants power to respective government bodies within that state. It's really hard to argue, hey, the court can't do this when your own state's constitution specifically says the courts can do this thing. Or, more realistically, the constitution doesn't explicitly give the legislature power to do something and the court simply points out that uh, you can't do that. So basically, Justice Kagan pointed out that SCOTUS has said that the Supreme Court can say there's a lot of says in that particular yeah. moment right there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just realized that. Kagan says that previous Supreme Courts have said that state Supreme Courts can say. Yes, uh, you can't do that because the Constitution doesn't give you permission to do that. Or you can't do that because the Constitution explicitly says you can't do that and still be within the bounds of their powers. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson also voiced concerns in a similar vein, discussing that the state constitution creates the state legislature and therefore con the constraints contained in the constitution apply to that legislature, including that legislature's power under the elections clause. Again, this document is what gives you your authority. Obey it. Right? <laughs> this is pretty simple. Um, Chief. Justice John Roberts also seems skeptical about Thompson's interpretation of the elections clause uh, and the broad power it would afford to state legislatures. To support his point that state legislatures have never been really allowed unchecked power, he pointed to a 1932 Supreme Court case, Smiley v. Holm. Taking it way back. Um, and yeah, in which the justices upheld Minnesota Governor Floyd B. Olson's veto of a congressional map enacted by the state legislature. Sounds familiar. Mm -hmm, more mm -hmm. things change, the more they stay the same, really. Smiley, Roberts said, is a pretty significant exception to this interpretation um, that undermines the legislature's argument that it can do whatever it wants. <laughs> We would like to point out here that those were Justice Roberts' actual words, not our paraphrasing, quote, undermines the legislature's argument that it can do whatever it wants. I don't know exactly the emphasis he put on it when he said that, but in my head, in my head, it was incredibly I, dry sarcasm. I, hopefully somewhere there's a clip out there that exists of that, and I'm going to go find it. Because yeah. it cannot oh, possibly have been anything other than sarcastic. Yeah. Uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch has tried to spin a little bit more nuance into his interpretation, stating that state legislatures have not all thought themselves limited by their state constitution on election issues. He pointed to the Civil War. Uh, there was an interesting problem in the Civil War. State constitutions would have prevented soldiers stationed away from their homes from participating as absentee voters. 
However, state legislatures didn't adhere to these limitations. Justice Gorsuch also seemed to suggest that limitations such as those imposed in Smiley v. Holm are different from those imposed by state courts because the veto can be regarded as sharing legislative power. Throwback here, you'll remember from your high school civics class that power in the U.S. government is divided between three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. The legislative branch makes the laws, the executive branch executes those laws or carries them out, and the judicial branch evaluates and applies those laws when questions arise. Justice Gorsuch's argument is essentially that the executive branch, when exercising its veto, has a limited role in creating legislation as well. Therefore, it is within the bounds of the Elections Clause, which limits creating laws about federal elections to the state legislature, for a member of the executive branch to use its legislative power to influence the creation of these laws. In other words, the legislature is not just the state legislature as we think about it. It's not just the state House of Representatives and the state Senate. Yes. Um, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, uh, she brought a different argument to Thompson. Um, she she was kind of asking, how in the world do you draw a line between these claims substantive limits on the legislature's discretion, um, which Thompson had argued the courts didn't have the power to do, and procedural limits, which Thompson had argued was the only power that the state could enforce. She, just the attempt, she said, would be a logical morass which really is an enjoyable turn of phrase. I, I liked it. How, how do you end up concluding that a certain limitation was a substantive limit and not a procedural one? Let's take another quick trip to civics class really quick. Obviously, it's a quick trip. Uh, when you hear the word substantive in legal context, in a legal context, they're talking about the actual rights and obligations that govern people and organizations. Procedural, on the other hand, refers to the rules that govern how substantive law is created, applied, and enforced. Substantive law creates the right in question. Procedural law guides how we adjudicate the exercise or restriction of that substantive law. In essence. Clear as mud. Clear as mud. It, it is a logical morass. Uh, in essence, Thompson was arguing that state courts couldn't limit substantive legislation, only legislation that discussed how you applied substantive legislation. But we're talking about voting here. Voting is both a right and a process. You have the right to vote, and this is how you vote. Any limitation that a court placed on legislation about voting could be argued to be both a substantive and a procedural limit. If you, the court, say I, the citizen, can vote unless it's Sunday, you are limiting the procedure of how I vote, saying Sundays are off limits. But you're also limiting my substantive right by saying I can't actually exercise that right on a specific day. Justice Amy Coney Barrett summarized how intertwined these principles are, which is very, um, by saying the distinction between the two limits are notoriously difficult lines to draw, which I think is a beautiful understatement. 
Um, Justice Samuel Alito seems to agree with Thompson, however, which Alito is, you know, on the more conservative end of things. And by more, I mean extremely. Um, And so he agrees with Thompson, who is who's representing a conservative uh, uh, body here. Um, And he said that resist he resisted, excuse me. He resisted any suggestion that ruling in favor of an independent state legislature would actually threaten democracy. His argument is that many state Supreme Courts are elected. Justices have to run for their office. They have to campaign. They have to fundraise and go through the standard electoral rigmarole. Given this, he asked whether it really advances democracy to transfer the quote, political controversy about redistricting from the legislature to elected Supreme Courts where the candidates are permitted by state law to campaign on the issue of redistricting. In other words, is it really better for democracy to to reject the independent state legislature theory, which would keep ultimate authority within a considerably larger and therefore more representative elected body in favor of allowing the matter to be handled by a much smaller elected body that can explicitly campaign on their plans to support or oppose jan- gerrymandering? It's a good question. It's actually, a f- I gotta say it's a fair question. It's, it's pretty fair question. I, I, I think it ignores the reality of the right. fact that gerrymandered districts are already a thing and therefore state legislatures aren't necessarily representative of state populations. Yeah. Uh, I, but there's a point in there. Well, and it, it also ignores the fact that um, on your average ballot, the judges are the um, the least researched and the most likely to be either ignored as in like we just don't fill in the bubble or people are just likely to fill in whatever bubble they think. So um, campaigning as a judge is likely to have much smaller impact um, than than the actual state legislature um, and those candidates have. So, I mean, I don't know. It's a fair question. I'm not usually in favor. I actually do agree. It is, it is a pretty fair question. I'm not usually in favor of giving Alito, you know, credit for good ideas, yeah. but. I know. I know. I felt dirty, but I mean, he's got a point. He like the, the ultimate point of democracy is to represent the will of the people. The best way to represent the will of the people is, have, is to have a representative sample of the people. The more representative sample is going to be the larger elected body. Yeah, it really is. Justice Clarence Thomas, for his part, apparently wasn't interested in any of these legal arguments. Instead... <laughs> He implied that opposition to the independent state legislature theory rested solely on partisanship rather than on constitutional principles. I can't. I can't. He seemed to think that Democrats only stood against this idea because it currently worked in favor of Republicans. In an effort to prove his point, he mused about whether or not the lawyer representing the Democratic voters who originally challenged the gerrymandered map, Neil Katyal, would argue with this pointed hypothetical. If the state legislature drew a map that was very generous to minority votes, but the state Supreme Court ruled that the map violated the state constitution, would Katyal and his clients still stand against it? It's a good question. It's a worthwhile worthwhile question. I mean, it has to be answered. It It has to be answered. 
Okay, but that doesn't make it a good question. Like, I, I, no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't because surprising literally nobody except for maybe Justice Thomas himself, Katyal said, yes, they would disagree with, I mean, they would agree or they would challenge this still um, because it turns out that something that's dangerous for democracy is dangerous for democracy, no matter who benefits from it. Like, crazy that. Right. And I say, and that's, I say it's a good question because um, in, in the process of outlining these arguments and developing a case, especially in public discourse, you have to ask these things so that people have the opportunity to answer them publicly. Like, so it's on record that, uh, yeah, no, like we would absolutely oppose that because otherwise then you get this undercurrent of arguments where it's like, well, he didn't say that if they would like, you just, yeah. You have to My put it stance out there. would be the same regardless of the benefactor because the underlying issue is still an issue. Yes. And and that is that is what Katyal said. Yeah. Like yes, it's 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 wrong no matter who benefits from it. Which is unsurprisingly um the same thing to say and it's something that I've noticed this is a very tangential thing. There seems to be this mentality among people of certain political leanings that if the shoe were on the other foot, mm -hmm. you wouldn't be so against it. Mm -hmm. But I've never actually seen that in play. Right. In fact, there was this big speech on the House, on the floor of Congress that made it a big point of saying rules for thee and not for me like a billion times and it was super duper annoying. So um but every example I've seen of people ignoring rules ever since then has been mm -hmm. that party yeah. making the exceptions for themselves. And it's it really does feel to me like a lot of these accusations are like projections. I mean, yeah, that's exactly you what I was going to say. Well, this is classic projection, right? The thing that we yeah. feel the most guilty for is what we accuse others of doing. Yeah. Um. And so that's, I mean, that's exactly what this is. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's just that in order to justify some of the things that these politicians and people, regular people are doing, they have to make the assumption, they have to believe that their opponent or their enemy, which is the, a lot of uh, the the bent of the conversation around this would do the same thing. Right. Would actually probably do worse, you know? Yeah. So whenever this is enough, like this is a, this was a real question in court. Oh, this, this map would really benefit minorities. Would you, would you still be upset or would you, would you still say that the court had the power to strike it down? Like, aha, you're a hypocrite, aren't you? Like, no, like not, One, not a hypocrite, even, just really for accurate representation of the will of the people. Yeah, it's not hard. And also, Justice Thomas, sir, even if I were a hypocrite, do you think I'd be stupid enough to admit it in court? Right. And the transcript <laughs> of the official record of the Supreme Court of the United States. Nah. Nah. <laughs> nah. Nah. Right. Okay. So if we even have to have this conversation, like if this case has made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court, how doomed is our democracy? <laughs> well, I mean, we have real concerns. Don't don't get us wrong. But it seems like this current challenge, this one 
isn't going to be the one that brings us down. Knock on wood, I'm hoping, right? I don't want to jinx it, evil eye, spit, whatever. Even if this theory is accepted by the Supreme Court, even if they come down in favor of the Republican legislature on this one, which seems unlikely given their current stances that we just summarized for you, it isn't the death knell yet. I mean, again, super bad, super bad. However, even though the election clause does, I don't even have Invisalign, even though the election clause does give state legislatures pretty broad powers, very broad powers, in, 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 in specifically presidential elections, the U.S. Constitution and federal law control when presidential electors are chosen in a state. And this is important. Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution empowers Congress to choose when presidential electors will be chosen. Literally, it says the time they will be chosen. Subsequently, federal law establishes that electors are chosen on election day, which is the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And while the Constitution gives state legislatures the power to choose electors, every state legislature has delegated the power to choose the president to the voters. Remember, when you're voting in a presidential election, you're not casting your vote directly for who you want to be the president. You're voting for whichever slate of electors you want to cast the vote for president on your behalf. Yeah, it's it's honestly kind of weird. Um, we do talk about that in our episode on the Electoral College. We've talked about this stuff a lot, you guys. Yeah. Uh, It's like we have a pretty comprehensive body of work around uh, specifically elections. Just just like 115-ish episodes, 110 episodes. So theoretically, a state legislature could take this power away from voters prior to election day. They could do it. It would create massive political backlash, though. And I'm fairly certain that it would lead to riots in the streets. Of course, I have no faith that that would stop the people who would try to do this, um, but they wouldn't no. be able to do it without massive repercussions. Massive. Additionally, once electors are chosen on election day, under the U.S. Constitution and relevant federal law that supports it, remember substantive and procedural, state legislatures have no authority to replace the choice for electors made by the voters with electors chosen by the state legislatures. Mostly. Except for one teensy little loophole contained in the 19th century Electoral Count Act. Um, And by teensy, we mean big enough that it could completely undermine the democratic process and so it needs to be fixed ASAP. Yeah, sinkhole-sized. Real small. Real small sinkhole that Mm -hmm. could swallow entire countries. This loophole is actually pretty simple as far as these things go. (laughs) If voters have failed to make a choice on election day, that is, if there's no clear winner or no outcome, something, whatever that means, the state legislature can name its own electors after election day. And, um, well, it's kind of up to the state legislature to decide whether or not the people have failed to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So 
not great. Mm-mm. And yes, this also came up when former President Trump and current individual whose eponymous organization <laughs> was found guilty of tax fraud <laughs> and his team tried to overturn the 2020 election. <gasps> yeah. Congress is working to close that loophole, however, via the Electoral Count Reform Act, the ECRA. Uh, It would close the failed electors loophole and has very strong bipartisan support, including 15 Republican sponsors as of November 4, 2022. That's more than enough to overcome the 60 vote threshold to avoid a filibuster. Um, So this is one of the bills that the lame duck Senate is projected to vote on before the end of the year. It's like this is important or something. Crazy. Crazy. Should the ECRA pass and the loophole close, then state legislatures would then have no authority to override the people's choice for president. Federal law, not state legislatures, would continue to take precedence regardless of the standing of the independent state legislature theory. Because federal law would require electors to be chosen only on Election Day if the ECRA passes, state legislatures would have no power to choose different election electors after Election Day, even if they don't like the choice that the voters made on Election Day. Again, this is, of course, only a partial solution and would still leave serious questions about congressional elections, but it would at least resolve issues around presidential elections, which seem to be, you know, what causes insurrections in this country. You know what doesn't cause insurrections in this country? (laughs) The wealth of information found at firesidebreakdowns.com. It's just a a true treasure trove Mm -hmm. of of information. Um, Seriously, if you like what we do here, go check out our website. It's pretty cool. You can listen to podcasts. You can see our show notes, which are really what we call the the literal scripts that we write for these shows. Um, We do divert from these scripts from time to time pretty significantly. But all of the information that we bring to you, it is it's written down. Especially if you have, if you know people that are not podcast people, send them links to our show notes so they they can still get the same information because it's all there. It's cited. You can go, you can check out uh, the links, the resources that we use. We do try to sample a broad uh, swath of of information and sources Mm -hmm. um, whenever we write these things. Um, We do. If we refer to a previous episode, we do try to link it. We don't always get it, but we do try to link it in the show notes so that you yep. don't have to go hunting for it. Yeah. I think there are three links in this episode alone to previous episodes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, go check it out. Click all of those links. It, it looks so good. It looks so good when we pitch this to investors, when we have like dozens of clicks a month. Yes. So good. Just give us we have no all investors. of the investor monies, please. Yeah, all of it. That's not true. We have We have investors. We do. And you can be one of those people by following the link found at firesidebreakdowns.com to our Patreon. Yes. yes. Patrons get special treatment. Uh, honestly, we just, we treat them better than you normal people. It's true. That's, that's all there is Bonus to it. Bonus content. You know, they, they, they cut the line. They get, they get episodes whenever we can actually record them ahead of time. They get the episodes mm-hmm. ahead of time, mm-hmm. sometimes a whole week in advance. Yes. Yeah whole extra 15 minutes or so of content a week. Actually, sometimes it's 15 seconds. Really depends on what we have time for. Mm-hmm. And this week, it'll be like, it'll be probably closer to the 15 minutes than 15 seconds. That's right. 
Yeah. It's never critical for understanding the episode, just by the way. Yeah. So if you don't have the money, that's fine. You're going to get all the good stuff here. But sometimes it's just a little extra. Just a little, yeah. little you know, little little salt base salt yeah. on that. Okay. Throwing it back. So um, we're done being awkward. We're, that's we're our shameless done. plug. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Hold on. On our website, you can also find links to our social media presence. Oh, yes. um, you know, as long as social media survives, we'll be on it. <laughs> We might not be great at it, but we'll be on it. We are going to talk about that a little bit actually in the bonus content. So if you want to know why we think that social media might not survive, you should just maybe, maybe hop in. Even, even a dollar a month gets you access to the bonus content. Everything. 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 Exactly. You know what you don't have to pay for around here though? What's that? Good news. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Good news. Bring me that. Bring me that good news. That good Tell news. me what's good this week. There's a variety of good news that we could choose from this week from the mm-hmm. uh, protection for a variety of kinds of marriages that passed in the Senate to Brittany Griner coming home. Um, there were a lot of things that we could have chosen, but because we do try to stay on theme each week, today we are celebrating Raphael Warnock's win over Herschel Walker in Georgia's Senate runoff election. Mm-hmm. Huzzah! Mm-hmm. It was a little close for comfort, but he did win. And that adds a little bit of margin to the progressive majority in the Senate, despite Kirsten Sinema and her decision to swap to independent, which, good riddance. Changes nothing. It, it literally changes nothing. Changes nothing. Um, this does mean, Raphael Warnock's win does mean that Vice President Harris is le- less likely to be called on to break a tie in the Senate. And it means that Joe Manchin is a little less able to hamstring the vote with his one-man veto power. <laughs> it also means we only need nine Republicans to break a filibuster, right. assuming Kirsten Cinema continues to vote primarily with the Democratic yes. side of things. Um, um, so, yeah. Super helpful. That's that's pretty dope. Yeah. It's pretty dope. It also means an end to the power sharing agreement that uh, Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell set up that basically split Senate committees equally along party lines and forced tie votes back to the Senate floor in order to move ahead on like nominees and bills that they wanted to put through. Um, so Democrats will instead have that extra seat on each committee and that should clear the path for those bills and nominees to that have to undergo the committee process to move forward. Like like judges? Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. I um, Ugh, crazy. think that we might see just a real quick blitz on as many judges as we possibly can get through by 2024. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yes, that's exactly what... It's exactly what Trump and the Republicans did while he was yeah. in power. They shoved through as many justices as they could. I mean, for all of their their talk about court packing, right? Again, projection. They were they were not exactly you know changing the composition of the Supreme Court by adding a seat to it, but they were packing it by being hypocrites, um, crazy, right? Um, and you know failing or refusing to confirm Merrick Garland and putting their own man in when they had the chance and then turning around under the same circumstances with Amy Coney Barrett and putting her in. Oh, and Kavanaugh and putting her in. Anyway, sorry. You just called Kavanaugh her. I'm not even mad about it. Oops. I'm not even mad. (laughs) I'm sorry I misgendered you, Justice (laughs) Kavanaugh. That is a microaggression to women everywhere. (laughs) Anyway... 
until we meet again. Thank you so much for listening to us uh, for our wild and crazy ride. Yeah. I hope that everybody is going into the holiday season with a little bit of hope, a little bit of joy, a little bit of warmth in their heart. I hope you have time to spend it with your loved ones, um, to work on maybe some connections that have been languishing or um, you know, focus on the important things in life. This is my favorite time of year for a lot of reasons. Um, this is not part of the show or anything, but um, I really love the Christmas season, not necessarily because of Christmas, but because of the overall attitude of people in this time of year and how much more patience we all seem to have with each other. Um, so hold on to that for as long as you can. If we don't get another episode cranked out before Christmas, have a Merry Christmas, uh, potentially a Happy New Year. We're doing the best we can still. Um, until we talk to you again, take care of each other.